You're listening to Grace Seal Beach Sermons. If you'd like to know more about our church, go to gracesealbeach.org. All right. Has anyone heard of this organization called He Gets Us? Anyone? Is this, this is on, yeah? Yep, okay. He Gets Us. This is from their uh, About Us page on the website. He Gets Us is a movement to reintroduce people to the Jesus of the Bible and his confounding love and forgiveness. While much has been said about him, much is still misunderstood. All right, this organization, they fall really heavy on the full humanity of Jesus. He gets us because he's one of us. And through really well-produced uh, 30 to 60-second uh, videos and articles and buying up ad space on primetime television and looking to place ads in major sporting events and on billboards and a big social media presence, they're really doing a good job at getting the word out. Uh, they've uh, put their money where their mouth is. They've spent $100 million so far. And in the next three years, they hope to spend a billion dollars for this campaign. And, and you might be thinking like I did when I first heard that, that's a lot of money. Couldn't that money be better spent on other things? Right? Well, just to give you some perspective, Americans spent $44 billion last year on dog food. And I love my three little furry friends at home and I feed them which you're happy to hear. It, it's, it really, I mean, we have a responsibility to care for them. But compared to, to the responsibility we have for people to know Jesus, uh, it pales in comparison. If you watch the He Gets Us uh, videos or come across their website, they'll give you options to chat about your faith or submit a prayer request or sign up for a Bible reading plan, or they'll try to connect you with a, an evangelistic group like Christianity Explored or Alpha, because their goal is to pique people's curiosity about Jesus, the God who gets them, and then connect them with God's people in a local church. So I recommend this website to you strongly, hegetsus.com. Uh, check it out, not during the next 30 minutes, but after the service. All eyes up here, please. All eyes up here. I bring up this particular organization uh, because the scene in Matthew 26 that we just heard read Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, it screams, he gets us. Was Jesus ever lonely? Was Jesus ever stressed? Did Jesus ever mourn? All these questions, which are titles for videos that this organization makes, are answered with a resounding yes as we encounter Jesus in the garden. Uh, last week, we were in the Garden of Eden. This week, as we continue on our series, A Tale of Three Gardens, we're in the Garden of Gethsemane. Last week, it was about creation and fall. This week is about redemption. Last week in Eden, the first man, Adam, failed. This week in Gethsemane, the God-man, Jesus, succeeds. But it won't be easy. In the garden, we see Jesus struggling with the failure of his friends and we see Jesus wrestling with the will of his father. Jesus is lonely, he's stressed, he mourns. And we might think, well, well yeah, but he's God. So it's, it's not as bad as it would be for us. He's God. I once heard a pastor say that the temptations and trials Jesus endured were like uh, somebody shooting a BB gun at an aircraft carrier. They just kind of, boop, kind of just bounce off. They don't really affect it. 
I think out of our desire to protect the deity of Jesus, his, his being fully God, if we're not careful, we can diminish the full humanity of Jesus and really downplay his temptations. And when we do that, we will never think he gets us. We won't really believe he knows what it's like to be lonely, stressed, or, or mourning. If he didn't go through it all, then he can't relate to us when we suffer. And if that were true, we should go a little bit further back in the New Testament and just rip the book of Hebrews out of our Bible and drop it off in the trash on the way out. I mentioned Hebrews because that book makes it very clear that Jesus was fully human and experienced all we ever will. Jesus in Hebrews 2 is said to be like his brothers and sisters, flesh and blood. Jesus was in Hebrews 4 tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin. But don't miss that he was tempted in every respect as we are. Whatever you've been tempted with, he knows what that's like. He gets it. Let me ask you, would you ever describe your temptations, your struggles with sin like BBs bouncing off of an aircraft carrier? Is that what it feels like when you're struggling? It doesn't. No, that's right, Glenna. That's not even close, is it? Your temptations are real, and so were his. It's a mystery to consider how God can become a man and then how that God-man can be tempted by sin, but it's true. Anytime we try to clean up the picture of Jesus, we gloss over his humanity or make his temptations to be out less than real. We do violence to the scriptures and to the mystery of the person of Jesus. And this is not advisable, friends. Jesus, our great high priest, is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. He knows what it's like to be alone, stressed, and depressed. And so he can help us when we find ourselves in those same places. What we read in the book of Hebrews lays out the full humanity of Jesus in a really compelling way. But I think what we see in the Garden of Gethsemane does even a better job at that. It's the clearest picture of the humanity of of Jesus that we have anywhere. Here in the garden, Jesus wrestles with the will of God. He really struggles with it. And that struggle comes through in his prayers. His dependence upon God was not a show for us, just an example for us to follow. He really did depend on God. Like the weakest of followers, he fell heavy on the person of his father to get him through to be with him, to support him. There's a 19th century Presbyterian minister named T.B. Kilpatrick, and he wrote, Jesus never found relief in his divinity from his suffering. He took refuge in prayer. And what that means is his sufferings were real, as real as ours, and much more intense, as we'll see. He never defaulted to his deity when he encountered pain, and temptation. He, he didn't play the God card to get out of a tough spot. He experienced it all. One quick note on the, the setting of Matthew 26 before we settle into the garden. Jesus and his disciples have just shared in the Passover meal together, the, the Last Supper uh, that's famously depicted in Leonardo da Vinci's uh, painting. I imagine as they're sitting around the table, one of them, maybe with the one with the best voice, just starts singing. Uh, Matthew 26, 30 said that they preferred hymns, like some of you. Now I picture Jesus in my mind, when I think about the Son of God, I, I see him doing good and, and 
speaking to people and all that, but I don't often picture him singing. Do you? As a Jew, this would have been a regular part of his, his worship. Uh, did he have a good voice? Would he be able to get past Chris Howard at the audition for Sunday morning? <laughs> Perhaps not. Uh, we, we, most of us should hope that having a bad singing voice is not sin, right? Yeah, it's not, a, it's not sinful to not sing well. They sing a hymn. They didn't just pick at random. They, they didn't take a special request from James or John. There were certain parts of their hymn book, uh, the book of Psalms, that they used for special occasions. And on Passover, the Jews sang the Hallel. Halal means praise, and Yah or Jah means Lord. So they, they sang the, the Hallelujah, Hallelujah in English, praise the Lord. And the praise hymns, the Hallel used during Passover were numbered 113 to 118 in their hymnals. Or for us, Psalms 113 to 118. It's amazing if you read through these Psalms and then think about where we are in the story of Jesus with his disciples, just all the connections there. They, they could have been singing this, Psalm 116, one to four. It's within those Psalms. Consider, this could have been reverberating off the vocal cords of Jesus right before he goes to the garden. I love the Lord because he's heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompass me. The pangs of Sheol or the grave laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. So just before going to the garden, they sing. And once they've sung, it's time to pray. So Gethsemane, this is a garden area, an olive orchard at the base of the Mount of Olives right outside the city of Jerusalem. The name Gethsemane means oil press, which is really fitting because it's here that this place where Jesus and his disciples often hung out, that Jesus is about to be pressed or, or squeeze to a place of extreme anguish, almost to death. And this scene, it's just one of the saddest pictures in the Bible. In his great hour of need, his closest friends, Peter, James, and John, who had just confessed earlier in, in Matthew 26, even if everyone leaves you, we won't leave you. We'll be, unfaithful, we'll be faithful, undying loyalty to you. Whatever you need, Jesus, we have your back. They can't even stay awake Right? They're no help at all. I, I don't know how often you think about the fact that, that Jesus had personal needs or that he had any needs at all. Sometimes we just picture Jesus doing for others who have needs. He's the need meter. But that he actually had needs. And, and it's, it's easy to imagine that we'd have a hard time going there, that we wouldn't think uh, just naturally Jesus had a lot of needs. Because after all, he's been for eternity with the Father and the Spirit and when that's your small group, three is all you need. But something changed, amen, yes, amen. But something changed with the incarnation. The Son of God clothed himself with frail humanity. And now for the first time ever, he had limitations. He had needs just like the humans he came to save. Jesus had needs and one of those needs was for friends. We so easily miss this. For instance, when he appointed the 12 apostles, 
we're inclined to think it was so that the work of the ministry could go on after he ascended to heaven. And that's a good inclination, right? That, that is true. But if we read Matt, or Mark rather, 13, oh, sorry, if we read Mark 3, 13 to 15, I, I think this is really incredible. It says, he went up on the mountain and called to him those he desired. They came to him. He appointed the 12 whom he also named apostles. And it, two reasons given there for this. So that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So the first reason Mark cites for the appointing of the 12 is that Jesus would have people to be with him. He has need for relationship. Just to be with him. Isn't that amazing? Do you ever truly consider that that you and Jesus are friends? My Lord and my God, Thomas says. We can imagine him falling at his feet too, right? I mean, that, that's our God, my Lord and my God. But friends, Jesus is your friend. That's how much Jesus humbled himself, how much he loves us to be made like us, to take on our limitations, to make himself vulnerable, to put him in a position to need friends. And what did his closest friends do when he needed them most? They fell asleep. He was, as Isaiah says in the 53rd chapter of his prophecy, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And that sorrow and grief, it reached its high point on the cross, but it started long before that. We see it here in the garden. If you've ever been let down by those who, who should have been there for you, those that you should be able to lean on, those that you look to for support. If you've ever felt the sting of betrayal by someone you called friend, Jesus can relate. He gets it. He gets us. Because he has needs, he bears his soul to others. He lays it all out there in the garden. In this passage, we see two things clearly. There's an outline in your bulletin if you're a note taker. I've uh, put them on two different lines. They're, they're simultaneously happening throughout the story. Uh, the first thing is Jesus struggles with the failure of his friends as he considers the cost of redemption. And then the other thing is Jesus wrestles with the will of his father as he considers the cost of redemption. Struggles with the failure of his friends and wrestles with the will of his father. We see both of these squeezed together throughout this scene. Jesus invites his friends to be with him in the midst of this great trial in the garden, to support him, to be for him. When he and the 12 get to the garden, he says to the group of them, you stay here, but he takes the, the three closest friends with him a little further. And while he walks with Peter, James, and John, he opens his heart to them. In verse 38, he says, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death, remain here and watch with me. So he's saying, I've been with you, now I need you to be with me. Support me, help me, pray for me. This had to be challenging for them to hear Jesus say. Pretty uncomfortable, right? Like us, I think they'd prefer the powerful and authoritative Jesus the one who casts out demons and stills storms and rebukes the self-righteous religious leaders and throws over a table and makes a whip and is always strong all the time. That's the Jesus they wanted. That's the one they're comfortable with. Uh, that's the one most of the Jews were looking for. 
that strong leader. We so often, if we're honest, we want that same kind of leader, don't we? We want the strong Jesus. We want to be on the side of the winners. We want to be part of a church that tells people what's up. Kindness is for wusses. That doesn't work anymore anyway. Who they got was a bit more complicated. The real Jesus is powerful and authoritative, but he's also sad and he has needs. And that was perhaps more than they knew what to do with, so they just closed their eyes. He walks out to pray to his father and the further he gets from them, the heavier their eyelids get and Jesus falls on his face, cries out to God in prayer. Hebrews 5, 7 says, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. With loud cries and tears, Jesus prays three times in the garden. And in these three prayers here, we see a man wrestling with his God about the path he called him to walk. And this is instructive. If we don't ever wrestle with God and his will for us, then I would venture to say we have a pretty shallow relationship with him. Why? Because the will of God is not easy. It's the most wonderful path to walk it's, it's more preferable to any other will to follow. In the end, we'll see that it was all worth it, but it's often at cross purposes with our will, isn't it? That's why we pray, as Jesus taught us, your will be done, not mine. Your kingdom come, not mine. The will of God includes pain and suffering. For Jesus, it included more anguish and sorrow than any human being would ever have to endure Jesus prays three times in the garden. The first prayer, verse 39, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. I wonder how long it took him to get those words out through the tears and the, and the anguish in his soul. My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. This prayer is just total honesty and unwavering trust. He's willing, but he wants, if possible, to avoid the cup. What is it about that cup? What's that cup about? There's a quote on the back of your bulletin uh, from John Stott. This is really helpful. It says, Jesus referred to the coming ordeal as a cup from which he shrank in dread. Was it simply death? Socrates met his end in a prison cell in Athens in a very different mood. He drank his cup of hemlock, says Plato, without trembling, very cheerfully and quietly. So, Stott asks, was Socrates braver than Jesus? No. All the evidence is against this. Jesus' physical and moral courage had not for a moment wavered. In that case, their cups must have been filled with different poisons. The cup that Jesus ardently longed to avoid was neither the physical pain of crucifixion, as bad as that was, nor the mental anguish of desertion by his friends, as much as he felt that deeply, but the spiritual horror of bearing the sins of the world. In the Old Testament, the cup was a regular symbol of God's wrath. With that 
wrath in view. Jesus says, Father, if there's any other way to accomplish redemption within your will, can we explore those possibilities? He doesn't want to break outside the will of God, but he does want to to move around in it and see if there's any other avenues. Is there any other way we can do this? He knows the high price that's coming when he drinks that cup. He'll become sin when he drinks that cup. 2 Corinthians 5.21. He'll become a curse when he drinks that cup. Galatians 3.10 and following. He'll be forsaken by his father because of that cup. He's not a masochist. He's not looking forward to the physical pain of, of death on the cross. But it's the cup. It's the wrath of God that's causing him this grief and this sorrow even unto death. And it makes sense because for all eternity, which is a really long time, for all eternity, he's never known the displeasure of his father. He's never been out of fellowship, never separated from from his father, not even for a second. And so when he considers that that's what's coming, when he bears the weight of sin on himself, that he'll be forsaken by his father, that's what's overwhelming him. Luke tells us in his gospel, adds some things we don't have in Matthew. He says, his sweat was like great drops of blood falling to the ground in the garden. That's anguish, right? Luke also says there's an angel sent to to be with Jesus to help support him in his time of need. You might remember when the devil uh, tempted Jesus at the beginning of his ministry Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness, Luke 4 says, for 40 days the devil is on him. He was unsuccessful, you might remember. But Luke says he departed from Jesus until an opportune time. Well, I don't know if there's more of an opportune time for him to come and mess with Jesus than in the Garden of Gethsemane. Here in the Garden, Jesus wrestles with the will of God, and I think We can be confident that in addition to the angel, Satan is there with him too, tempting him. Like the serpent in Eden, Satan is tempting Jesus, trying to derail him from the will of God. And and I hear the the devil, that that serpent, I wanna call him other things, but we're in church. The snake whispering, we can almost hear him whispering in his ear, can't we? You can't do it. Who do you think you are? You're, you're too weak for this. Just sleep like your friends. It's a tough night for Jesus, right? Which is why he prays. He's on his face. He's crying out if there's any other way. And what's clear, even in the midst of all this, is that he trusts his God. He knows the heart of the one that he calls my father. He rests in his will. So he says, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will, father. He's exhausted. He picks himself up off the ground. He wipes his tears. He returns to his three friends. He could really use some encouragement after round one of his praying, couldn't he? I imagine how sweet it would have been for him to, to get back close to where he left the three and, and, and they're, they're gathered around and they're, they're, he hears them say, God, please be with Jesus. Please help him. He needs you now. Please support him like he's supported us. Be with Jesus. I'm praying for him. Uh, the, the teacher would have felt so pleased with his, his students. They've learned the lessons. 
What an encouragement. That didn't happen, did it? No. Instead, he gets to wake up his sleeping students. He says to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Right? I think when we, when we read things, it's good to engage our imagination or when we watch things like the, the Chosen or Jesus films, things like that, it's really helpful because we get to see faces and expressions and imagine what that we don't just read really quickly through. We get to feel what this would have been like. And, and can we hear the, the anguish, the disappointment in Jesus' voice when he says to Peter, could you not watch with me one hour? He probably singles out Peter because Peter made such a big deal among all the disciples about how he would never betray Jesus. Very vocal. So he's saying, you, my most faithful follower, Peter, couldn't you stay awake one hour with me? The pain, the betrayal, the frustration here. I've worked my entire life for you. I'm getting ready to go to the cross for you. I'm giving up everything for you. Could you not stay awake for an hour? He says to them, verse 41, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. So their spirit was willing like our spirit's willing, right? They were sincere like we're sincere when we say, I'll never leave you or deny you, Jesus. But their flesh, like our flesh, is weak, They sleep and snore when they should be watching and praying. We do too. Peter, James, John, watch and pray, Jesus says. The devil prowls around like a lion looking to devour you. Be on guard. I'm heading back out to pray. Pray for me. Watch with me. Stay alert, guys. He walks out to the place of prayer and he prays a second time. Verse 42, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. So the words here are a bit different from what he prayed the first time. He doesn't again pray, if it be possible, let it pass. He's past that now. But rather, if it cannot pass, since it cannot pass, your will be done. He's moved from exploring options within the will of God to understanding that there's only one option. He must drink that cup. He must drink it and he's willing to drink it. He trusts his father and as difficult as the cup will be, he will drink it all. He returns to his confidants, again finds them sleeping, again frustrating for him. But there right before him is a living, sleeping illustration of why he had to come and die. Because we are so weak. We sleep when we should be awake We so easily fall to temptation when we should listen and obey the one who tells us the whole truth and loves us like no other. Jesus came to live and die for sinners like the ones who are sleeping right before his tear-filled eyes, and he came to live and die for sinners who are gathered for worship at 11 o'clock on 8th and Central right here. He goes one final time to prayer, and we don't have the words, but Matthew says he said the same thing again. Third prayer, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And, and here, I think it's really helpful. We, we need to pray things more than once, don't we? We see that modeled by Jesus. Not, not because he didn't mean it the first time, we don't mean it the first time, but because there's an act of reaffirming 
what we have prayed before, something that's strengthened in our soul, in our resolve. Jesus here is reaffirming a second time his acceptance of the will of God and that it does include that cup. There's tension in Jesus at the beginning of this scene, but by the time we get here, the tension has been resolved. He's no longer praying, let the cup pass, but not my will. And it's really clear, God, what your will is. It's that cup for me, your will be done. It's his final surrender. And this, the will of God has always been his consuming passion. The will of God above all, but that does not mean that it comes easy. It was soul wrenching for the son of God. So where are we at in the story? Uh, the disciples are sleepy, the, the, his captors are coming. The cross is inescapable, but Jesus is ready. Now he's ready. Verse 45, then he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See the hour is at hand and the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See my betrayer is at hand. One, one more quote, just because it's way better than if I were to parse it out and then claim it for my own. Everett Harrison former professor of New Testament at Fuller Seminary in a great little book called A Short Life of Christ. He wrote this, there is no doubt about it, Gethsemane was the Savior's preparation for Calvary. On the cross, he yielded up his body as a sacrifice for sin. But here in the garden, he anticipated that hour by yielding up his will, the very kernel of his existence. Conquered were his dread and aversion. He was ready to die. It's notable that in the upper room, Jesus confessed to having a troubled soul. The same mood deepened and more tragic was upon him in the lonely hours of his prayer wrestling in the garden. And then something changed. But when he stepped forward into the flickering light of the torches of his captors, he had such composure that they fell back in wonder and dismay. Through the trying hours that followed, until his eyes closed in death, that outward calm remained with him, sustained by the deep peace of a soul that was perfectly attuned to God. Gethsemane was the Savior's preparation for Calvary. Redemption is fully accomplished on the cross, but the Savior yielded up his will in the garden before he yielded up his body on the tree. He considered the cost of redemption and he said, yes for you, for me. Back to what I said earlier about Jesus being fully God and fully man. Because he's fully man, he gets us. And that should be really good news to our, our ears. We need to know that he's fully human, that he knows what it is to suffer, to grieve, to bleed, to die, to lose. He understands you, what you're going through, how you feel when you're at your worst. He gets you. He's fully man, but he's also fully God. And because he's fully God, the one who gets us is able to help us like nobody else can help us. He is no sleepy friend. He is Lord, Savior, Advocate, Emmanuel, which means God with us. He's the unique son of God. He's the perfect lamb of God. He's an acceptable sacrifice to God. He gets us thoroughly and he saves us completely. Only Jesus can do this. 
And Jesus has done this for many of us here. But I wonder, has he done it for all of us? Are there, are there any that would say, I haven't yet chosen to follow Jesus? Has he done this for you? Have you been gotten by the one who gets us? Have you turned the reins of your life over to Jesus, someone who's much better at, at steering your life than you are anyway? Let him. Let him take the reins. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve struggle over a command about a tree. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is struggling over a command about a tree. They failed. He succeeds. The tree of Eden became a tree of death. Tim Keller is really helpful here. And he says, and do you know what Jesus did? He climbed that tree of death and turned that tree, the cross, into a tree of life for you and for me. On the cross, Jesus drank a cup of wrath without mercy so that you and I could drink a cup of mercy without wrath. God, somebody yell hallelujah. And now we know what that means. Hallel plus the yah, yah. He gets us. He gets us. And he gets us from the Garden of Eden to the Garden City of New Jerusalem by way of the Garden of Gethsemane. We, we could say he gets us from G1 to G3 via G2. That should be the sermon title. I hope you're hearing this is good news this morning. You can get out of Eden if you'll look to Jesus, the one who by his death and resurrection makes all things new. Fear doesn't have to be your future. Death doesn't have to be the end. Believe in Jesus today. Believe in the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Believe in him and you'll be saved. Saved from what? Saved from the wrath of God. Saved from the penalty of your sin. Saved from the power of the devil and the grip of this present evil age. Saved from a small and incomplete story. This morning, God invites you to enter into his story, to receive his life. Maybe his son is saying to you this morning, come. Come to me and I will give you rest. I think he'd also be saying, and don't delay. It is late, but there is still time. So come, let's pray. God, you're so good and we pray that What we've heard from you, your spirit would drive it down deep into our hearts. And maybe we've heard some things this morning or we've sensed some things in the worship service or maybe in a conversation with someone on the patio. And we know it's true. We know it's good. We know we need to believe it and incorporate it into our life. And it just kind of floats up here for whatever reason. I pray that you would, by your spirit, whether you need to do that with a brick or a feather, pile drive those things into our souls that we might be changed. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.